Take your Bibles with you, uh, with me, and turn, please, to a couple places. Uh, you really don't have to turn far. We're going to turn to the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. Uh, the last book of the Old Testament, does anybody know what it is? Well, it's Malachi if you're following the Hebrew Bible. It's Chronicles if you're following the Greek Bible. But we're following the Hebrew Bible, so yes, you're right, it's Malachi. Uh, Malachi chapter 4, and I want to read just the last... Uh, uh, three or four verses of Malachi chapter 4, and then I want to go ahead to Matthew chapter 17 and read a few more verses from Matthew chapter 17. And the direction of our day-to-day -day is, uh, if you've been with us for a while, we've been looking in 1 Kings, particularly at the life of uh, a prophet Elijah and of a king Ahab, and we're just going to summarize all that up and look at how Elijah is referred to in the New Testament. So first of all, in the book of Malachi, or as a good friend of mine says, Malachi, we're going to start at verse 4 and uh, just read to the end of the chapter. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then over to Matthew chapter 17, the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 17, the first of the Gospels, and starting at verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Father, thank you for our time now uh, to gather around your word. Would you make this book come alive to us today? As we just kind of pull together some loose ends and Make a few comments about your word and about your servant. May it be of benefit to us and help to us as we strive to follow you, to find you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As it often is, as we come to the end of a series, we've usually been in it for a number of months, and I have a stack of books that um, have been my helps as we go through any particular series. And it was with some uh, reluctance and some sadness also that I picked up this pile of books and put them back on my shelf here at uh, the office and at home. Uh, these authors have been my guides, they have been my teachers, they have been my helpers, and uh, they have helped me uh, understand and make my way 
uh, through this book of First and Second Kings and hopefully have helped you at the same time. As we come to the end, though, I wanted to take one more week to uh, consider Elijah in the New Testament. We've referred to him a time uh, uh, here and there as, as it's come up in 1 uh, in Kings, but I thought it'd be helpful to pull all of these loose ends together and, and say, how does the New Testament look at Elijah? And why does the New Testament draw so much um, attention to Elijah? In fact, out of all the Old Testament characters, I believe he is the third most mentioned Old Testament character in the New Testament. Uh, and so the, the first thing I simply want to do is just make a couple comments about the theme of this series, which has been when conformity is not an option. It's often at eulogies when you get a real sense of the life of a person who has died. All of a sudden you hear people begin to talk about them, and you hear things about them that you never knew, and you're kind of blown away. And you say, I never knew that about that person. I never understood that about that person. And it wasn't until we came to the last day of Elijah's life that I think for me, the penny dropped, and I realized that this Elijah was a pretty incredible man that his role in the society of Israel at the time was a role that was larger than life. And how that penny dropped for me was at the moment when Elijah is, Elijah is taken up to heaven, Elijah cries out, um, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen. And it was this cry of anguish as he was taken up into heaven. And some initially think, well, he's just seen the chariots of heaven and the horsemen of heaven come down as Elijah is taken up into the whirlwind. But that same phrase is uttered by the king of um, uh, Israel when Elisha dies. And the king of Israel utters that same phrase, oh, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And as I think about that, what that is, is it's an epitaph about Elijah. It's a statement about the man Elijah. It's a way of encapsulating the, the man Elijah. And so what Elisha is saying as he sees Elijah go up into heaven, he says, there goes a one-man army. There goes this incredible man of God, this God, this man who has fought for us against all the forces of evil and idolatry. You get the sense from Elijah that what are we going to do? That this man was something that all of us need to understand his impact in the culture and in the society in which we live. It's as though Elisha all of a sudden just realized how much God had empowered him, how much God had led him, how the anointing of God had fallen upon him. And in his heart and mind, he's thinking, who will take over? Elijah was a man who was larger than life. As I think about that, I think of the own legacy that you or I will live in the, 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 the particular areas in which God has placed us. I don't think any of us will uh, aspire to be an Elijah. I don't know, maybe some of our kids might, some of our young people might be an individual that God calls out and gives them a role somewhat like Elijah. But I want us to understand that no matter whether we're Elijah or not, we can be a one man or a one woman fighting machine in the context that God places us. That we can stand against incredible odds and against incredible forces that are arrayed against us. And if God is on our side, we will never be outnumbered. I want you to understand that as you go back to your schools, as you go back to your neighborhoods, as you go back to your societies and your clubs, that you need to go back with this affirmation and this confidence in your hearts and minds that conformity is never an option. That no matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter what they try and drag you into, no matter how strong the forces of evil may seem that are allied against you, remember Elijah and you too can be as of the chariots of Israel and the horsemen of heaven. You can be a one woman or a one man army.
And so I hope that at the end of this, you will go out with the confidence again that you don't ever have to conform. That as the word of God says, that we ought not to be conformed to this world, but we ought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the word of God. And so I hope that that is stuck in our heads and our hearts and our minds, no matter where we go, no matter what we do, conformity is never an option. As we bleed then into the New Testament, I really want to look at uh, the, the four instances where the historical Elijah is mentioned. We've referred to a few of them over the course of the last 16 weeks, but we'll uh, just drop on them very quickly to make a note about the power of God. What I want you to understand is that when we get to the New Testament, as they look back on the life of a man who lived some 800, 900 years before them, they understand Elijah to be a historical person. They understand him to be a man that actually walked on this earth, who, who actually spoke and who actually did the things that he said. They understand that the Bible records true history, true human history. And I think that you and I ought to understand that, and we ought to be comforted by the fact that the Bible treats the rest of the Bible as though it is the very word of God and as though it is reliable history for you and I. Some of you may be aware that uh, last week or a few days ago, GQ, the magazine, came out with a list of 21 books that you don't need to read. And they introduced their list by saying this, we've been told all our lives that we can only call ourselves well-read once we've read the great books. We tried. We got a halfway, about a halfway through, and then they list three or four that they got about a halfway through. And they said, then we realized that not, not all the great books have aged well. Some are racist, some are sexist, but most are just really, really boring. So we, in a group of unboring writers, give you permission to strike these books from the canon. Here is what you should read instead. Guess what number 12 on their list of books that you don't have to read was? The Bible. The writer goes on to say, the Holy Bible is rated very highly by all the people who supposedly live by it, but who in actuality have never read it. Now, there is a glimpse of truth in there or something that, that in the midst of our uh, frustration or our anger that they would do this uh, to the Bible, we ought to just check ourselves and say, okay, do we contribute something to that? Do we sort of say that we've read it, but we've never really read it? Do we uh, attest that we live by it, but we don't really live by it? And so, therefore, we sort of falsify our testimony in the Bible. So, I think they make a good point, at least there's something to think about it. But then they go on and says, those who have read it, Know that there are some good parts, but overall, it is certainly not the finest thing that man has ever produced. I think, wow, like what a slam on the inspiration and authority of God in Scripture. And they go on and they say, it is repetitive, self-contradictory, sententious, which really means moralizing. It is foolish and even at times ill-intentioned. In its place, the writer suggests that we should read Agnata Christoph's book, The Notebook. And I doubt if anyone will ever remember that book in five years from now. And I doubt that book will ever sell in the millions, certainly not in the tens of millions. The Bible has sold in the billions of copies all around the world for the last thousands of years. It has been something that has sustained people both within faith and outside of faith. And how dare they come out and say that it is a book that we ought to strike from our must-read list. How can you delete a book? which has undergirded Western civilization? How can you say a book that has informed law and government and ethics is on, no longer on your must-read book? And I don't ever want us to be influenced by this garbage that people print out there that say the Bible is something you ought not to give attention to. 
New Testament writers look back at the life of Elijah and they say, we need to learn from this man. Loved ones, you can't afford, none of us can afford to put the Bible on our don't have to read list. So what does the New Testament say as it looks back on the life of Elijah? Very quickly, it tells us in Luke chapter 4, verses 22 to 28, as it recounts the uh, life of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth, as the people of Nazareth are coming to Jesus and they're discounting who he is, they're diminishing who he is as he works miracles in other places. He comes home and they say, well, this is just Joseph's son. What does he have to help us with or to contribute to us? And there Jesus refers to the famine that drove Elijah through the land of Israel out of Israel to the area of Sidon. And he says there in Sidon he found a widow who was a woman of faith. A widow who trusted the word of God. And a widow who eventually trusted the God of the word. And so from that illustration we understand that Jesus has the power to save that there are no boundaries, there are no borders, there is no geography at which the word of God and the power to God is stopped. And as Jesus illustrates that particular text from the life of Elijah, he makes the point that God is able to stave even if we are in the uttermost. And whether that is geography or whether that is in the uttermost of sin, the grace of God can reach you and save you and bring you out of darkness. The second thing that we see Paul refers to Elijah in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. And as he does, he's referring to that account, and you might remember it, where after the Mount Carmel, Elijah goes and he, he leaves uh, Jezebel's wrath and he makes his way eventually to Mount Horab himself. And when he gets to Mount Horab, what he does is he accuses the people of God of idolatry. And he accuses them before God and he says, God, I alone am left as a representative of you. You need to judge your people. And one of the things that God does is he says, yes, I will judge. When you go back, I want you to anoint three people and they will serve as judges against the people of Israel. But then God also reminds him and assures him that there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee or have kissed Baal. And Paul uses that to make the same point that though there might be apostasy in Israel, that God has a remnant, those who he preserves, those who, those who he keeps his hand upon. As Jews says, those who he will keep blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ. And so it reminds us there of the power of God to preserve you and I in the midst of a wicked and a crooked and a perverse generation. That we can trust in God's power to keep us. We can trust in God's power to hold on to us. We can trust in the fact that we are not alone in our school or in our workplace or in our neighborhood. You might feel alone. But remember that as the Bible says, one day we will look at those that are saved and they will outnumber the sands of the sea. And so you and I might not, to be able to, might not be able to see all of God's men and women around us. But rest assured, you are never alone. And God is able to preserve you. The third place that we find Elijah mentioned is the book of James. And it's there in a context of prayer. In James chapter 5, I believe it starts at verse 13 and goes to chapter 20. There are um, four instances of which the people are called to pray in different circumstances. It's a, a helpful instruction to us about how we pray and how we learn to pray. But in particular, one of the four instances is Elijah. And James points us to Elijah to think about Elijah and think about the power of prayer. And he says, Elijah is just like you and I. He was no different than us. He had flesh and blood like you and I. He ate like you and I. He sinned like you and I. He walked with God like you and I. He was just like you and I. And when Elijah prayed, God heard him and shut the heavens for three and a half years. 
And when Elijah prayed again, God heard him and opened the heavens. And what it is, is it's a reminder to you and I that God has the power to work miracles. That there is nothing that stays the hand of God. There is not, no situation in which God cannot act. There is no situation in which God cannot intervene. We have to understand the power of prayer and the power of God to work on our behalf. And it's a great reminder to us as we work our way through the New Testament. As it looks back and it looks at a man like Elijah. He says he's just like you and I. And through his effective prayer, God listened to him and did powerful things. Don't be intimidated by the greatness of the challenge in front of you. Always be encouraged by the power of your God to act on your behalf. The fourth place that we find Elijah, um, the human Elijah mentioned is, as I've already read in Matthew chapter 17, it's the transfiguration of Jesus. It's this incredible experience in which the, uh, the three disciples get this um, opportunity to see the two natures of Christ. As they walk up the mountain with Christ and all of a sudden they're walking up with the Son of Man and he's transfigured before their eyes and the radiance of the Son of God bursts out of his human skin, so to speak. And they see his power and they see his might and they see his glory and they see his majesty and they realize that this is the Son of God as well. And as all this is happening, it says, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared and started talking with Jesus. It was this stunning sort of conference that is taking place. And we don't know all that they talked about, but Luke tells us that one of the things they talked about is the death of Jesus. The exodus of Jesus. That's what the Greek word is, the exodus of Jesus. And as they, these, these three individuals talked, I can imagine the conversation as Moses, the great lawgiver, talked about the covenant that God had given to him for mankind and how people had broken that covenant and how he went back up to the mountain and interceded on behalf of them that God would be merciful to them. And then Elijah, the great prophet, who goes back to that same mountain and accuses the people of their unfaithfulness and yet God is merciful to them. And now Jesus, as he talks about his exodus and probably talks about them, the new covenant that will be established in his blood and this incredible conversation that takes place up on this mountain. But there's something that I think sometimes we miss. And we talked a little bit about heaven last week and about the new heaven and the new earth. Do you understand? Did you, do you, have you ever stopped to think about this incredible glimpse that we have here of Moses and Elijah 850 and 1300 years later alive? They're walking around with Christ. They're not still in the grave. Elijah went straight to heaven. Moses died. But where are they? They are in heaven with Christ. This is of great encouragement to you and I who maybe fear death, who maybe wonder what happens after death, who wonder what happens with our loved ones. They are engaged in heaven. They are walking and talking. There is a sense in which there's a corporeal reality to us when we go to heaven. The Bible has a lot to say about bodies and robes and talking and bowing of those who are already in heaven. We're not some spirits that just float around and don't know anything. They recognize Moses and Elijah. There's this incredible insight into what's going on in heaven. And there's this reminder here then that God has the power to raise us up. That as we walk with God and as we're men and women of God and as we die in the Lord, we go to be with him in heaven as we wait the new heavens and the new earth and we're not just these vacuous spirits that float around there. We reign and we rule with Christ as we wait for his return. And so we see this with Moses and Elijah, 
So I want you to understand as we go through this section just so quickly that the life of Elijah demonstrates to us the work of God in real history. This is amazing. I, I sometimes think we have bought into the deistic dualism or the deistic worldview, which, which says that God just sort of wound the world up. He threw it down here, and now he just sits up in heaven and watches it unwind. You never get that picture in Scripture. God is regularly involved in the little things and the big things. He's involved in guiding and directing your life and my life. He's involved in guiding the direction of Pierre or Elliot Trudeau. Not Pierre. He did him. But Justin Trudeau or Trump or over in North Korea, God is guiding and directing those affairs. He is involved in real history in real time. And this is what we get reminded of, or at least what I'm reminded of as I look at Elijah in the New Testament and his treatment of them, him in real history. And then we jump to a metaphorical Elijah in the spirit and the power of Elijah that we read from Malachi chapter 4. There's another line that's drawn from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And it begins in Malachi chapter 4, which I read. It's the end of the Hebrew Bible. Did you know that there was an expectation left with the people of God that Elijah would return? Do you know that there was 400 years plus that, that existed between the closing of the Hebrew canon and the opening of the New Testament? And part of that 400 years was filled with this expectation that Elijah would return. Because with the return of Elijah, that would signal the return of Christ or the Messiah. And whether this refers only to the first return or the second return, I happen to think that it refers to both of them. But remember, the scripture says, and God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This word had created an expectancy amongst the people of Israel. And I think to myself, well, why Elijah? Why not Moses? Why not David? Why not some other prophet? Why was it Elijah that they were waiting for? And how would Elijah appear? Would he be reincarnated? Would he come back to life? Would he come back to earth after being up in heaven for 400 years? Would it be the same Elijah, the Elijah that we've been looking at in First and Second Kings, or another guy by the same name that would come? Well, I, I think it's the Elijah of First and Second Kings, and it's the spirit and power of that Elijah, though. A prophet was God's spokesman, and they were often sounded warnings. They were a gift of God's grace to people of a particular time. The day of the Lord is a time when sin and evil will be judged, and we know that one day God is going to come back, and when he comes back, judgment will happen. And so the prophet is a gift of God that gives us time before judgment comes to hear the message of repentance and turn to God. And so God is saying that just as Elijah came in the Old Testament in the days of Ahab and called the people of God back to repentance, so there will be one who will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah who will call people to repentance before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. It was on this Mount of Transfiguration after they've seen this incredible uh, event take place and they're walking down the mountain and all of a sudden the disciples turn to him and they say, when did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come? It's not a random question. I think the penny had dropped for them that Christ really was the Messiah, that he really was the Son of God. And so as they're thinking about this now, they're piecing it all together and maybe they're thinking about Malachi and they're thinking, well, wait a minute. If the Messiah has come, and we've not seen Elijah, then what is this teaching that Elijah must come before the day of the Lord comes? 
Jesus had told them about his impending death. They knew that the time was short. And so it was then that Jesus pointed them back to Malachi. And he reminds them that it's a metaphorical Elijah, not the real Elijah the Tishbite who would actually come. And he says, John the Baptist was that man. And we find that spoken of in Luke chapter 1, verse 15 following, when the angel comes to tell Zechariah about his son. The angel says to him, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit and while still in his mother's womb. Amazing. Catch that. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's in his mother's womb. Those are children in the womb. And they can be impacted by the power of God in the womb. He says, He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to understanding the righteous to make ready for the Lord the prepared people. What did John the Baptist come preaching? He came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. John's role was part of God's saving grace in the world. People were given a chance to repent, an opportunity to hear the good news, to come to their senses and make them uh, come into a right relationship with God. John was encouraging repentance and the turning of fathers and children back to the Lord. So then, if John is Elijah, the Elijah spoken of in Malachi, then it is an encouragement and reminder to us that Jesus is the coming judge that's also spoken of in Malachi. And so this prophecy was fulfilled in the life of John the Baptist and affirmed and confirmed that Jesus was the Son of God. A couple things that I didn't expect. I don't know what I expect when I come to the Word of God, but I'm often surprised by what I find. And I didn't, I, I just, I, I guess I had low expectations. It's a terrible thing to say. But I, I just, I thought, well, we'll just have a good time. We're going we're gonna to learn about Elijah. God had so much more for me to learn. One of the things I didn't expect was to get a clear picture again of the sovereignty of God. That is woven through the pages of uh, 1 Kings 16 into 2 Kings chapter 2. The sovereignty of God over my life and over my circumstances and over my actions. His control over creation, his control over animals, his control over humans, his control over the weather. We saw how he was the one that directed ravens and suppressed their natural appetite to bring food to Elijah. He was the one that provided uh, miraculously oil for the woman. He was the one that raised the woman's son back to life again when the son died. He's the one that sent the rain. He's the one that withheld the rain. Uh, he's the one that sent... Uh, knew where people were going to be at certain times and would send them to meet up with them. God is the God that controlled all the events of all the people all the time. He's the one that even directed a random arrow to be shot from a guy who just turned around and looked at the Israelite army and said, well, I'm going to take one of them out. And he shot his arrow and it hit the disguised King Ahab in the only place where there was a gap in his armor and it killed him according to the word of God. I was both reminded and encouraged by the sovereignty of God. And I hope that you have been encouraged again in your own life to think about that reality that there is nothing that is outside of the guidance and the direction and the providence and the sovereign rule of God. The second thing that I didn't expect to find, and I'm kind of ashamed of this and I probably shouldn't admit it, but I didn't expect to find so much of the gospel is woven through the story of Elijah and King Ahab again and again and again. 
These passages are drenched with the outpouring of the grace and the mercy of God, even to a king who is described as one of, of the most wicked king that Israel had. And I think as, as I look at stuff, I, don't, I, don't, I need to open my eyes to see more of the grace of God. I need to open my eyes to see more of the mercy of God. I need to open my eyes to see more of the invitations of God to us who are wayward and are sinners and, and find ourselves walking away from him to see the ways that he blocks us, he stops us, he directs us to bring us back to himself. You might have been here when we looked at um, Ahab when uh, God had told him, you're going to die. And he was heart crushed by it and he went before God and it says that he tore his garments and he humbled himself before God and God responded to him and withheld his judgment upon him and was gracious to him and merciful to him and gave him time, which he didn't use wisely, but gave him time to get his life right with God again. If you're here just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at um, Ahaziah's death and all we talked about was his last day. That's all the Bible records, his last day or when sickness comes into his life. And what do we see is seven different references of the mercy of God to him. Opportunities of God to him to turn around, to see that God is working in his life, to see that God is calling him back to himself. What do we see of the widow in, in Zarephath who... Who, who was in the heart of Baal country. That's all she knew. That's all she heard about. And God sent her, the prophet Elijah, to spend time with her, to expose her to himself. And, and she responded with, with, with humbleness and humility and belief in God. And she became a child of God, a daughter of Abraham. Oh, I found the gospel in these texts everywhere, loved ones. And it's a reminder to me that I need to open my eyes and that I need to be so much more aware of the mercy and the grace of God, the way that he withholds judgment, the way that he makes opportunities for salvation available to me and I hope to you. The third thing is I didn't expect to be confronted with the authority and the power of God's word. I really didn't. Um, but I knew that I was in for something when we dealt with the very first um, sermon in 1 Kings chapter 16. And at the end of 1 Kings chapter 16, it has this seemingly random reference to the rebuilding of Jericho. And there was a curse that God had pronounced when they had first destroyed Jericho hundreds of years earlier that if they rebuilt Jericho, it would be at the cost of the oldest son and the youngest son. And we find that um, Ahab didn't give a rip about God's word and decided that he wasn't going to allow Jericho to be built and the word of God came to pass. And we find all along that Ahab is resistant to and fighting against and trying to obscure and trying to hide from and trying to overpower the word of God. And we find again and again phrases like, and he died according to the word of God. He died according to the word of God. The word of God said this. The word of God said that. And I was tested and chastised in my own life because there are times when I fight against God's word. I resist God's word. I try and ignore God's word. I try and overpower God's word with my sheer will and my own desire to do something different. I think, why do I not see the prophet in God's word? Why do I not see the truthfulness in God's word? Why do I not come to my senses and recognize that God's word is a unique word? It is a word that comes from the mouth of the living God who was and is and is to come. It is a word that will never pass away. It's a word that will never lose its power. It is a word that will never be thwarted in both its curses and its blessings. And why don't I long for and trust in the promises of God the way that I fear the judgments of God? And so we come to this particular portion of Scripture from uh, 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings 2, and we see again and again that it reminds us of the authority and the power 
of God's word. The final thing that I want to say is where does ultimately lead us to? The first is simple enough, I think. Um, on the mountain, God's voice thundered. It, it, it must have been so, it must have been something because it said that the disciples were terrified. And the implication was they fell on their faces and they couldn't see, they couldn't hear. They were just dumbstruck by the thundering voice of God. And while Peter was still speaking about building a tent for three of them, the voice of God thunders from the cloud and he says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it says, Then the disciples fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. They saw no one but Jesus. You know, we get enamored, don't we, with all kinds of personalities. There are a lot of people that we look up to. There are a lot of people that we follow. There's a lot of people whose blogs we, we follow. There's a lot of people whose books we follow. There's a lot of preachers that we follow. There's a lot of human people that can get in the way of us seeing Jesus. And if we have obscured Jesus in these last 14 or 15 weeks, I apologize. Because in the end of the day, what we need to do and where we need to get is to see Jesus. We need to get past Elijah and behind Elijah see the power of God working in him and the power of Christ working in him. We need to see Jesus and Jesus only. And the second thing that I thought about, and the Bible makes this point in a different way, it's easy to look at the life of Elijah, and particularly uh, 2 Kings 2, where we didn't spend a lot of time and make a connection back to Moses. And follow me just for a couple minutes. Both Elijah and Moses went to meet God on Mount Horeb. Both Elijah and Moses died on the east side of Jordan. Neither the grave of Elijah nor Moses could be found. Now, Elijah didn't die. He went to heaven. But remember, they sent a bunch of people to try and find him, and nobody could find the grave of Moses. Both of them stand as those who were faithful to the covenant. Now, think about the two that served them, Joshua and Elisha. Both of them are called faithful servants. Both of them have their ministries authenticated by crossing through the Jordan River. When Joshua, the first miracle that Joshua did is he, he sent the ark ahead of them to put their feet into the Jordan River. And what happened? The Jordan River parted and they walked through on dry ground. What's the first miracle that Elisha did? He took the mantle of Elijah, he whacked the Jordan River and it parted and he walked across on dry ground. Both of their names are similar in meaning. Joshua means the Lord saves. Elisha means God saves. Both of them stand, both pairs stand in high points of Israel's salvation history. Moses and Joshua stand at the redemption of Israel and from Egypt and their entrance into the land of Canaan. And Elijah and Elisha stand when apostasy is at its worst in the land of Israel. So we can look forward from Eli or backward from Elijah and Elisha to Moses and Joshua. Can we look forward from Elisha or Elijah and Elisha? I think we can. There are clear ties between Elijah or, or Elisha, or sorry, Elijah and John the Baptist. We've already pointed out to them. In fact, John the Baptist is the one who is said to be the spirit and the power of Elisha. So there's a clear connection between Elijah and John the Baptist. And I wonder, is there not a parallel being made then between Elisha and Jesus? In this case, though, John hands over the ministry to one who was preparing for the servant of the Lord. But what does the name of Jesus mean? The Lord saves. God saves, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves, Joshua, Elisha, Jesus. There's, there's something going on in the biblical text here. At one point, John the Baptist sends to inquire about the ministry of Jesus. 
To which Jesus responds, referring to a passage from Isaiah 35. He says, look at my miracles. The sight is restored. Lame walk again. Leprosy is cured. The deaf hear again. And the dead are raised. But you go back to the Elisha reference, and it doesn't include anything about the raising of the dead and about the healing of a leper. And I wonder, well, is Jesus referring back to the ministry of Elisha where Elisha did raise the dead and where Elisha did cure the leper? And then is it just coincidence that both Elisha and Jesus start their ministry at the Jordan River? I've already mentioned that that's where Elisha started his public ministry as he whacked the Jordan River and it dried up. And with a mantle of Elijah fell from heaven upon him, isn't that where Jesus started his ministry in the Jordan River? He was baptized and what happened? Heaven opened up and God spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At the end of Elisha's life, they laid him in a grave, and before they could cover the grave up with dirt, they had another corpse, and they threw it in the same grave, and as soon as that corpse touched the body of Elisha, it was raised to life. What about the empty tomb of Jesus Christ? All who come to Christ find life, and life evermore. What about Elisha as he was coming to his ministry and he goes through the city of Jericho and they come out to him and they say, Master, Master, the water is killing us. Our, our, our women can't um, have children. Our, the animals aren't producing. We're all dying. And what does Elijah do? He, I think he gets some salt and he does a couple other things and he throws it in the water and the water of Jericho has been pure and perfect ever since then. But that water only was physical water. What about Jesus who is the water of life? And all who drink from him will never, ever thirst again. So salvation history has its high point in Moses and Joshua. It has another high point in Elijah and Elisha, and it has its final high point in John the Baptist and Jesus. The Bible is a careful description of God's plan of salvation for mankind, an incredible story of the gospel. Contrary to what the editors of GQ may want you to hear, this is a story that never gets old. This is a story that never loses its power. And you strike it off your reading list at your peril, your eternal peril. It's not the result of men coming up with something foolish or dumb or cool to write. The Bible is the very word of God given to us to guide us to Jesus Christ, to give us an awareness of our, our desperate situation, of our sinfulness, to, but to point us to Jesus Christ in whom there is light and life. Only the word of God leads you from sin into salvation. Only the word of God shows you the, the way out of darkness into light. Only the word of God shows you how one is moved from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. And I pray that as we've opened these chapters of First and Second Kings, and as we looked at the life of Elijah and of the life of King Ahab, that slowly but surely they have faded to the background and Christ has come to the foreground, and that God has been magnified in your hearts and minds, and that you're encouraged not by the great stories of Elijah, but you're encouraged by the power of God. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its help and its guidance in our life. I thank you for its relevance. I thank you that it is not a book that um, will lose its power. And I pray, Father, that we'll heed the words in this text. I pray, Father, that you will bring us to Christ again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.